Hey everyone, and welcome back to Conversations at the Perimeter. It's Colin, and I'm here with Lauren. And on this episode, we are thrilled to share our fascinating conversation with Lee Smolin. Lee is a founding faculty member here at Perimeter Institute, having joined a little over 20 years ago when the Institute was in its very earliest stages. I remember when I first came to Perimeter and it really felt like an honor just to be thinking about theoretical physics in the same building as Lee Smolin. He's a co-founder of Loop Quantum Gravity and he's the author of many popular science books including The Trouble with Physics, Three Roads to Quantum Gravity, and Einstein's Unfinished Revolution, The Search for What Lies Beyond the Quantum. Lee shared with us his philosophical perspectives on quantum mechanics too. He argues that quantum mechanics isn't actually a final theory, but is pointing in the direction of some new understanding of nature. And I was actually relieved to hear Lee talk about this, because if Lee Smolin struggles to make sense of quantum theory, then maybe there's hope for the rest of us. And Lee sees fundamental physics as intertwined with art and with music and philosophy and other ways that we humans try to make sense of our world and our place in it. Lee also opened up to us about his challenges with Parkinson's disease and how these struggles have shaped his thinking in recent years. We typically conduct these conversations in person, but for this one, Lee joined us via Zoom. So you may notice that it sounds a little bit different than other episodes, but no matter the setting, we know that you're gonna be fascinated with Lee's insights and perspectives. So let's step inside the perimeter with Lee Smolin. Hi Lee, and thank you so much for joining us on Conversations at the Perimeter. We're so excited to talk to you today. I know that you're well known as somebody studying the most fundamental questions in the universe. So we thought we could start off by asking you about some of the questions that you're trying to answer. I, I'm a storyteller and I'm interested in telling the biggest story possible, which means that the story I want to tell is the story of what we are, what we human beings are, who we are, why we are, and how it makes sense that we're in this universe. In other words, the story I want to tell is the opposite of a religious story where the explanation for every question ultimately goes down to some arbitrary act of faith. And I'm also uninterested in the opposite of that, which is epitomized by Steve Weinberg's epigram in, in his first book that says, the more we understand about the universe, the more pointless it may be. And he didn't know that that was a pun on the use of points in general relativity. But what he was saying was that nothing that we know about nature explains what human beings are, why we're here, what consciousness is, these things that everybody is really interested in. So I'm interested in understanding the universe so well that even such obscure questions like why there is life in the universe have an interesting answer. That includes making sense of quantum mechanics because, look, let's be real here. Quantum mechanics makes no sense. <laughs> I was it hoping really, you would say that. No, it really makes no sense. Most of my best friends, many of them, like Carlo Ravelli, believe that time is not fundamental. They believe that reality is not what we think it is, and we can get into that on his time. And they basically, in a certain sense, given up because they don't have the answers to the questions like, why is the universe hospitable to life? 
that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what is the law of physics, not just what are the laws, but how do they come to be the laws rather than other laws. And I'm interested in the old problem of putting together Einstein's theory of general relativity with quantum mechanics. And I actually think I did that, and then I did that again, and then somebody else did it a different way. And the problem with that problem is that it doesn't seem to be very unique. But anyway, that's not one of those things I'm interested in. Going back to your answer about telling stories, these are the biggest stories that you're you're tackling. What inspires you to, to chase these most fundamental questions? You know, I think that any line of questioning that you start on leads back to them. Sooner or later, if you're honest about your ignorance, you end up thinking about those questions. I think traditionally, they're questions that have been thought outside of the realm of science or physics. These are questions for philosophers and theologians. Or is that, is that a miscategorization? Is that a misunderstanding of them? Start with any question, and in three moves, we'll get to why is the universe here and why are the laws what they seem to be. Let me rephrase what you said. There's a metaphysics that was introduced by Newton and other people of the time. And it's, a, it's an expression of their religious faith very much when you look into it, because they were deeply religious. And even practices of mysticism and so forth. Um, I'm speaking particularly of Isaac Newton, but there were others like that. Kepler um, was a great mystic. And they had a metaphysical fantasy, and the metaphysical fantasy went like this. And I'm, I want you to guess who I'm quoting as I give the quote from memory. Supposing that there were laws which could tell exactly where every particle would be any time in the future if you knew where it was now and how it was traveling. And suppose you were really, really, really good at algebra, and you could compute all those laws and figure out where everything, every particle would be in the future. Then we would have no agency, no will. Our existence, our decisions, our ethical quandaries would be inconsequential because everything would be predicted from the motions of particles, which has no meaning on those levels. The amazing thing about this argument is that even if you aren't so smart, just being able to say that there are laws of that kind makes those dreadful consequences apparent. Now, who did I quote? I'll go with Rene Descartes. No. No? I know I saw it quoted in one of the articles I was reading about you before we began the recording, but I can't, I now can't remember who it was by. Let's save this for the end of the podcast. Oh, suspense. Okay. Oh, okay. You know, I want to ask how you can measure when you're making progress on these kinds of questions, because these are such fundamental questions. What are the laws and how did they come to be laws? Have you been able to measure progress in answering these questions throughout your career? All good questions have contradictory paradoxical answers. So I'm going to answer it like that. One is the answer that it's always been, which is that we can test our ideas. Because we use mathematics to formulate our ideas, we can compute exactly as the quote would tell us to do the future and test that. And we can do that in very restricted cases like balls rolling down inclined planes or 
the motion of a planet like Mars. But when we can do it, we really do it, and it really works. So that's the most impressive thing, because you can have an argument like Newton says, here's my calculation of how the comets move. And Leibniz, who's very philosophical, says, blah, 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 philosophy, blah, 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 philosophy, blah, philosophy. And Newton says, no, it really works. Here's where you'll see the comet if you look in the sky. And, you know, some other philosophers go, blah, blah, blah. Well, the audience prefers Newton because you can, it really works. Even if Newton's metaphysics is religious nonsense and philosophical nonsense. So that's roughly what happened. And that's still the case. If I come along, as I do and am doing, and claim that I have a deeper theory of microscopic physics that explains quantum mechanics, we don't have to take all these crazy things and just ignore that they're, they don't make any sense. Ultimately, the question is, can you make a prediction that shows where your theory would differ from ordinary quantum mechanics? And can we run that test? That's actually always been the answer, and that's the real answer. But we in the 21st century are sociologically sophisticated, so we tell that story a little bit different. We say there are communities that validate science, and how do you become a member of that community? We become a member of that community by learning the technical side, by learning the techniques that those in the community have discovered are very good for finding errors in your work. Because what a scientific community is, is a group of people who are pledged to each other to be honest and to, in good faith, and by the way, I didn't realize it when I used that expression, but it comes from Jean-Paul Sartre and, and the existentialists and so forth, apparently. But we know what it means. Good faith means you're not trying to play any tricks or cheat anybody. You report honestly the results of your observations and your calculations and your experiments. And then the community agrees to be bound by those displays of likelihood. I become a member of the community of theoretical physicists when I write a PhD thesis, which impresses my community enough that they can trust me, because nobody's going to go check everybody else's errors. So think that this is really how science works. There are these communities. Membership in the communities is highly controlled, as, as you might say it should be. And I know that this will make some people unhappy, but I think this is the way it works and the only way it can work. And something is judged to be part of the current understanding or the canon when it's passed many tests of this kind. It gives a fantastic, surprising predictions. But the whole social structure explains to me what I see happening all the time in seminars. And well, I was going to ask, you, you mentioned that a lot of your, your efforts and your work have been trying to make sense of quantum mechanics, trying to figure out what's missing or, or what's incomplete. Can you just take us back a little bit for, for listeners who may not be familiar with the challenge that you're up against? Why is figuring out quantum mechanics uh, such a, a challenge and, and unifying with uh, general relativity? Why, why is this such a, a focal point for physics? Because it's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing that the best explanation that we have has so much that's contradictory and 
against realism. So let me give some definitions here. I am a realist. I hope you are a realist. If you believe that there is a reality independent of our experience and our knowledge or belief, and that it is possible to gain knowledge about that reality by some methodology like the one that I was describing, that is, it's stable enough and concrete enough that you can gain knowledge of it. Then we're realists. And we sometimes say we're realists about different things. I'm a realist about atoms. That means that I don't think that atoms are just a contrivance to do a calculation. They really, really, really are atoms. And I'm also a realist about life, about consciousness, about colors. And I'm also a realist about electrons and protons and atoms and molecules and quarks and so forth, which means I want a version of the theory that explains and describes all those things, which doesn't depend on my observation or my belief or my existence. Quantum mechanics comes in many formulations, which is interesting enough. And many of those formulations not only violate that principle of realism, but they have all sorts of rhetoric about how it's dead and it was killed off by Nietzsche or the Nazis or whatever. That now we live in a relational world where, you know, your belief is as good as mine or anybody else's because we're all just relative man. And I'm against that. But that is a very, that relativistic point of view is very common in the 20th and the 21st century. and. Many of the people who developed quantum mechanics were anti-realists. That is, they didn't believe that there were any facts about the world which were true, except when they were created by intervention by human beings doing experiments. Just to ask Go one ahead. question there, would, would those people have described themselves as anti-realists at the time? Oh, for sure. Really? Sure. Read Niels Bohr. I mean, these people had agendas. And you have to think this was after the First World War. There was a lot of people who were anti-realist on all kinds of things because they were so dismayed and disappointed by what had just happened. Niels Bohr was a close student of Schopenhauer and other anti-realist philosophers. When I, when I hear the term anti-realist, I, I read it in your book no, many times, a realist versus anti-realist. The anti-realist strikes me as a, a shorthand for saying, well, it must be wrong. If it's not real, then it must be unreal, incorrect. But that's not, a, that's not the exact distinction we're making, is it? My distinction, since I'm a realist, but I have, as I said, genuinely many very good friends who are not realists. So how do they like being called anti-realists? It puts them right there and where they want to be. See, a lot of this is about people positioning themselves in a bigger context than theoretical physics. They want to, to see themselves in the big philosophical fights of the late 20th century, which have to do with modernism and postmodernism. And, and so there is a consistent story about quantum physics as um, a great advance of non-realism. Anti-realism. You know, I think about the the Copenhagen interpretation and the idea of many worlds. Some of the things that people th that their minds tend to to rebel against because these things are so strange. But 
you make it clear in, in your books that quantum mechanics is, you know, you said it to us earlier, it's, it's, it's strange, it's bizarre. If it's inherently unusual or counterintuitive uh, to us, that doesn't make it anti-realistic theory. Yes, I think it. I think it does. But there are versions of quantum mechanics that are completely realist, like pilot wave theory of De Broglie, which was actually the first version of quantum mechanics that was developed, because De Broglie developed his version of quantum mechanics, which was completely realist, about a year before, if I remember the history right, um, Heisenberg and Schrodinger developed their versions, which was 1927. Schrodinger also was a realist, and he thought he was developing a realist formulation of quantum mechanics, but he turned out he was wrong about his own formulation, to his great regret. Some theories, like Heisenberg's and others, seem to rise to the top of the pile, so to speak. They seem to be more popular or more widely taught than, than others. Is that a fluke of history, or is that a... Why is de Broglie's pilot wave theory not the theory that everybody's most familiar with? First of all, let me say at the start, I think it's changing, thankfully. This is part of the story I want to tell. Um, there was the generation that invented quantum mechanics, and that included Einstein, who started the whole thing off, even though he repudiated the direction it took. Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Max Born, and a bunch of other people who were all about as old as the century. Einstein was older and Bohr was older. And Schrodinger was a bit older. But typically, we're talking sort of 1925, 1926, and Heisenberg was 22, 23. And they were all foundationally oriented. And what I mean by that is that they thought in terms of these fundamental questions. And they had a good education in the history of attempts to answer these questions, which means that they could read philosophy and they had school-read philosophy and they were philosophically sophisticated. And that is a style of physics to reference the great philosophers or philosophical physicists in your arguments to make the kind of slow, careful, deep, reflective arguments and thought that is the best of that kind of science. And they dominated science in the period that we're talking about, which is sort of 1900 to early 1930s, because that you had to think about those questions to push science forward. Things were so unexpected and surprising that if you didn't have a philosophical orientation, you would you might give up. So that community was also centered in Europe, it's important to say. It was centered in Paris and Berlin and a little bit in London, not Cambridge, Oxford, a little bit in the northern countries like Copenhagen. And the one place that didn't take on that philosophical orientation was really and always was the United States. But what happened in World War II is, first of all, the countries and the cultures that supported that kind of science were desolated, and the center of physics moved very quickly to the United States. And there it encountered a very pragmatic 
scientific and otherwise culture. So here's an example, Freeman Dyson, who was, uh, the more I reflect on him, he died a few years ago, and he was a little bit of friend, and I wish I had been a better friend. But anyway, Freeman liked, liked to put it this way. He said, in most generations, the old people are the conservatives and the young people are the rebels. But in physics, in his generation, the old people were a bunch of rebels who were tangling, they were always arguing about philosophy and meaning. And, and meanwhile, there were all these great physics problems to solve by taking the theory, however badly understood, and just applying it to atoms and molecules and solids and gases and nuclei and gravity and particles and so forth. And they were making tremendous progress without worrying about the foundation. Is that the mm -hmm. shut up and calculate generation? Yes, that's the allegedly the set of incalculated generation. <laughs> For um, more practical matters were pressing rather than the philosophical ones? Yes, and um, Richard Feynman is the great hero of that period. Do you think it's possible to say, is there an ideal balance between addressing these more philosophical questions versus more pragmatic ones? I think it depends on what has to be done. For what was happening in science in that period, which is sort of 1930 to 1973 or so, 19, and I'll tell you in a minute how I'm dating them, um, it was what was needed. The people who were arguing about philosophy were not getting anywhere. They were, they were, what they were doing was not appealing to the younger people. But let me introduce a contrast and raise some questions that I've, I've recently been thinking a lot about. I've, I've been reading, Menon is, is a New Yorker editor and writer and a professor of English at Harvard. He's a very great sort of intellectual historian. And he has a book about the history of art and thought during the Cold War. And of course, the same thing happened in art. That is the center of art, which in, the, in Europe, in old Europe, was of course Paris. And Paris is where you had to go, moved to New York in the 1930s and 1940s because people were fleeing Nazism. And it's, he documents that, and it's extraordinary. 500 of the best painters in the world moved from Paris to New York. The Americans took over and learned a great deal from the Europeans. And then the Europeans, many of them went back to Europe, but the center of art stayed in New York. Something like that happens in physics, too. I think there's a great book to be written, I couldn't write, of those artists and those physicists encountering each other. For example, um, the great anthropologist Levi Strauss lived in the same building as Claude Shannon, and they never met. But I think there were some meetings. I think Feynman hung out. Feynman was also a jazz musician. He was also an abstract expressionist painter. I think Einstein hung out in the so-called black side of Princeton. Freeman certainly did. David Bohm did. And I think there's a lot of history about how science was taken over by the Americans and the American pragmatic philosophy. Now, I said that you asked me, is that the right thing? Well, it's the right thing 
in a context in which you have a lot of discoveries experimentally which fit in to the existing paradigm. What happens is that that paradigm runs out in the middle late 1970s. And it's, it's a very interesting question why it runs out, but basically its largest triumph was the standard model of particle physics. It stopped producing new discoveries, communicating to our friends here at Perimeter who do particle physics. Excuse me, your theory has been dead since before you were born. Seriously, I mean, do they react to it? Well, maybe now in 2022, the bravest of them write papers about the crisis in particle physics. But anybody with eyes to see understood there was a crisis in the methodology of elementary particle physics already in 1975, 1976. For example, Abraham Pice, who somewhat later became a friend of mine, we used to have lunch off in the Rockefeller University. And he was a great physicist who was in New York and was a great appreciator of art. For example, he had a Picasso that he had bought in Paris in 1945 with all his family's savings, which had survived the war. One Picasso. Brahm was of that earlier culture. And we often talked about the transition. And of course, he wrote some great books about himself and about Einstein and Bohr and so forth. My view has been since I entered physics in the middle 70s that the current dominant methodology was failing. It was, I don't understand why everybody else didn't see it. Brahms, and he, he pointed it out clearly. So how do you think we need to shift our focus or perspective moving forward from today? We all need to take a deep breath and say, we theorists of all kinds, everything we've been working has yet to lead to substantial progress since the 1970s. Can we say it again? We need to like get normalized to that the situation. Therefore, what do we need? We need people who are rebels, who are not concerned with their social status within the field of science or otherwise. We always need people who are great technically, but we need them to be imaginative, to be independent thinkers, to have their own compass, and to have um, deep curiosity and abundant courage. Lee, throughout your career, you've been seen as a, a rebel yourself, someone who's a little outside of the, the norms and uh, likes to challenge conventions. Did that come naturally? Do you consider that a professional hallmark of yours? Where does that rebelliousness come from? But it's not true. I mean, I'm not that kind of person. My stick, my game, which is very clear if you look at all my papers, is Stealing a really good idea from one domain of theoretical physics and applying it to another, or sometimes another domain of science outside of physics. That's when I'm good at sniffing out congruences and similes and metaphors in the mathematics fields, which means that I know the present stuff pretty well. If you want rebels, real rebels, you want people who are taking much more outlandish risks than I do. I take a very controlled risk. I take the most important idea in particle physics for the last hundred years, which is the close connection between 
quantum gauge fields and dynamics of strings and membranes and so forth. That idea was invented by Russian high-energy physicist Sasha Polyakov and his friends. And I just took that idea and applied it to quantum gravity with a few more necessary inputs from friends like Arbayastikar and Carlo Rovelli. I don't understand. To me, that was a deeply conservative move to make. Now, of course, it may not be right because we don't have experiments, but uh, it's doing pretty well. On the topic of some of these maybe rebel ideas, I wanted to go to a question that was sent in from one of our listeners. So this question comes from Kenneth. Hello, everyone. My name is Kenneth, and I am a student of the Perimeter Institute's PSI Start Summer Program and currently a software engineer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My question for Dr. Lee Smolin is, what new potential theories of quantum gravity have not been investigated to their furthest extent yet and you believe are worth the efforts of future mathematicians and physicists hoping to break new ground in space? Mine. No, it's... <laughs> <laughs> a few I need help. I have a great theory about quantum gravity and quantum mechanics and how they fit together. And I'll start to advertise it, if you let me. No, um, the whole point of being a scientist, as opposed to an engineer, is that you choose your research problem. And the thing that most characterizes a scientist and is most correlated with their success or not is their choice of research problem. So I'm not going to tell him my choice of research problem. If he wants to offer his services as an engineer to a research program, which would be very welcome, then um, find somebody doing something you're interested in. But I'm not going to tell you what, what's interesting. I actually have a follow-up question from uh, another uh, listener. Uh, this is from Sandeep in India. Hi, Dr. Smolin. My name is Sandeep and I am from India. What charm does physics have in the era of high-paying tech and finance jobs, if we think completely in terms of employability? I, I don't want to be one of these old guys who says, what is the current generation coming to? They've got no values and no passion, and they don't care about anything except job security. I mean, who are these people? It's a privilege to be paid to work on understanding nature. It's a privilege to be able to paint and further the understanding that art has of the world in the future. It's a privilege to be able to play musical instruments for other people's enjoyment and pleasure. And that's it. If you want to be more highly paid than your neighbor, then do something else. Please, don't get in our way. You've mentioned several times when referring to Feynman and other scientists that an important factor is the company they keep, who they're hanging out with, where and when. Can you speak to that in your own life and, and your own work, how the company you've kept has helped you in your life and work? Yes. First of all, I've been very, very fortunate in friends in science. And that's something I didn't know when I went into science, inspired by this fairy tale about Einstein and transcending blah, 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 blah is that you can make great friends, wonderful friends in science. And I have done so. And Carlo Rovelli, for example, we did great work together. Our best work, Carlo likes to say, is the work we did together. 
And we disagree about a lot of things, but we're deeply friends and support each other. And I feel that way about Abaya Astikar, who, with Carlo, we made the quantum gravity, more or less. And other people, Ted Jacobson. I now am working with some amazing people. In addition to that, I was very fortunate in meeting artists, good artists, I say. And this is this is a strange story, but it, is, it really was very influential on me. I now look back and I've written six books and I'm working on the next two. And let me first say that it's been a great privilege to write those books because each one offered an opportunity to think carefully through some problem that was bugging me in science. That's what they really, each of them, should be understood as. They're not journalistic, they're not popularizations. They are meant for curious non-scientists who have the same questions, but they're not, quote, science outreach is going for, which I'm frankly very puzzled by. And as a result of writing these books, I was in a position to meet, and again, genuine friends, a number of people who were at the edge of their field in some of the key fundamental fields. You see, I think that everything human beings do is about the future. We've always been developing, we've always been changing and learning. And I think that there are a small number of domains in which we human beings have, since the very beginning, been driving into the future. There have been people who've been trying to understand about nature that we find ourselves in. And there are people who have tried to push our understanding of the spiritual world that we find ourselves in. And there are people who have been trying to understand our political world, our, the world of other human beings. And that's it. That's sort of it. All the creative arts and so forth, to me, go back to those small numbers. And then you imagine the early artists, the early scientists, the early mystics sitting around their campfire, whatever they did, and talking because it's, it's all about talk. And so through some almost purely accidental meetings, most of which had to do with that I was writing these books, I met some extraordinary artists, and they become very good friends. And that greatly, 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 greatly enriched my understanding of my life in the world. Um, St. Chris and then Donna Moylan, Beth Turk, and many, many others. Is there a direct relationship there in that your scientific ideas sometimes get a spark from their creative ideas, or is it is it less tangible than that and more just about speaking to creative people about the world? It's less tangible than that. One of the things that, that I would never do is do a art and science and how are they related to talk. When St. Clair and I get together, which isn't as, as often as I'd like it to be, we still talk about techniques and we talk about ideas. We talk about it as two people who are very curious. Do you have an artistic side as well? Are you a, a creator of art or music? No. I mean, I, I can play around, but I used to play jazz, but I got good enough to play with people who were really, really good. And then I, I understood that I would never, there was no point. Um, I want to go back to the topic of your books. As you mentioned, you've written 
six books. This is a really huge endeavor. And I, I want to ask if you can say a little bit more on why you decided to start writing these books and what you hope readers will take away from them. It was an opportunity to think through what I was very puzzled about, which was which are the questions of what determines what the laws of physics are? How are the laws of physics chosen? The theory or the speculation about string theory had expressed the view that there might be one theory that was somehow perfect and was picked out by its mathematical beauty or something like that. And we had then discovered through the 1980s that that wasn't true, that there were vast numbers of string theorists string theories. So I went looking for a way you could understand how the laws were chosen by some process analogous to natural selection. And I had found an answer to that. That is uh, several scenarios that worked exactly and did make predictions. And I was confused about how that could be. How could a, a theory like natural selection, which is statistical and probabilistic, let's just say is probabilistic, can produce a deeper understanding than a more traditional theory, which just has one version of the laws. So that's why I took on writing that book. I was given the opportunity, never looked back. I mean, each time I've said that's it, I'm never writing another book again. It is not easy to write. It's not easy to write a good book. Like I have written six good books. Oh, but some of it is also that I like to express myself. I like to write because it allowed me to think through the questions that I was struggling with. It wasn't a waste of time for me. I was going to ask that if, if writing the books for a, a non-specialist, a curious non-scientific audience, if that forces you to get a sense of your own work in a, in a different way, if it forces you to look through a different lens, perhaps not the mathematical lens. Yeah, the mathematics is often a scaffold to hold you in a position where you're not actually very stable. So making, explaining why something is a good idea without mathematics is harder than explaining it with mathematics. I mean, everything you do influences everything else. I mean, when, when you're writing a book that you want to capture people's attention for two or 300 pages, style is very, very important. We don't teach style in physics graduate school. How did you develop your own sense of voice or style? Was it trial and error over time? It was good teachers, including some very good editors. It's a very different than an academic style. In an academic style, you tell them what you're going to tell it to them. You tell them what you just told them. It's very linear. It's very structured. And we can argue about that, whether to what extent that's a good or a bad thing. But you can't do that in a book for general readers. That kills a book if you use that structure from your academic mind. And you've written six books now, each is on a different topic, but are there any common themes that kind of go through all of your books? Yes, they're all interested in time. They're all interested in the consequences for the future of how we understand the world now. And I mean, in some sense, they're, they're one research program. 
laid out over many pages. But in the last book, Einstein's Unfinished Revolution, I explicitly lay out that research program, and that is my research program, and it has always been. But somehow it stayed in the background. The other thing is the more personal feelings about nature and society and how the future is going. Several of the books have epilogues. And what I was going to do, at some time, I'd like to just do something where I read all the epilogues in order. I won't read the epilogue of the first one, but there's a quote from St. Clair Semen, which opens it, and I can do that from memory. And this is in response to a question of what is postmodernism? And he said, if the purpose of modernism was to burn down the old classic house, which we've gotten quite bored with, then the achievement of postmodernism has been just to play around with the little sharp pieces that are left, which is a pretty puerile thing to be doing given that winter is coming. And that's, um, that's typical. That's not me. That's typical St. Clair. But we're after the same thing. What would you say you're after? I'm after having a scientific understanding of nature, which gives us human beings a place in nature where we can feel at home. Is there a, a sense of consolation that you're looking for, uh, where perhaps religions or moralities are, or, or fall short? Are you, are you looking for a, a sense of meaning behind the science? Maybe. I want better than consolation. Look, what's tragic about life, which is, of course, death and pain and illness, is which it's really not consolable. It's inconsolable. But living a happy life, a, a good life, in my very minor view, because I'm not very wise, is that there's no answer to that. The only good thing about them is that most, for most of us, the price we pay for a wonderful life comes at the end. I don't think there's a consolation. There, I'm very influenced by Roberto Mangivera Anger, who I wrote the fourth book with. You mentioned earlier that you're working on one or two more books, and you said you wouldn't talk about them unless we asked you to. So can I ask you to tell us what you're working on? Sure. One is about what we've learned, or what I've learned. And it will be a short book. It might even be a part of the other book. When you ask me what I'm interested in, it's not a very interesting story, but I dropped out of high school and I was working in the San Fernando Valley in LA as an apprentice sheet metal guy. And I used to take my lunches and rather than hang out with the other guys who I didn't really understand. And it was all guys, by the way. I would take a notebook and write thoughts about physics and science. And one day I wrote down in that notebook what I'm interested in is first of all what the universe is, and second, what life is in the context of the first answer, and third, what a human being is in the context of the first two answers. And so I thought it would be nice to write at least a section of the book that sums up what I've learned during my life in science. The other book is about Parkinson's disease, which I happen to have, and I've been reflecting on the implications of a new treatment, which involves putting a chip basically in your head and 
becoming what this, the feminist science fiction writers call a cyborg. That is somebody whose brain is half, or at any rate, part machine and part human. Can you tell us a bit about that experience so far with, with Parkinson's? How, has this affected how you, how you go about your life? I don't, I don't recommend it. If, if you want a recreational disease, <laughs> that's the way. It's like you have a high school friend who's become an alcoholic, and he shows up every few months, thrown out by his girlfriend, and stays on your couch a few nights and pulls himself together. And then time goes on. And you wake up one morning and you're on the couch. At first, it's relatively minor. It progresses, if you're lucky, and I, I am that case, slowly. I'm still more inconvenienced than anything else by it. But it grows in your life. That's not the story I want to tell because many, many people suffer, of course. Everybody, at least in their family. And I have nothing to say about that. But I do have maybe some reflections that I think we ought to think about becoming cyborgs, because I suspect it is going to become more common. Are you feeling trepidation about this, or are you optimistic? Do you know what to think? Well, I don't know what to think of the experience, but it's not a difficult decision to make. I mean, all you have to do is meet somebody who's had the implants, hang out with them for a while, and they'll show you what they're like with them turned off. Because everybody has an off button. They hold it over their chip that controls the networks in the brain, and they click off. And then you see what they would be like without the implant. And it's not a difficult choice. And this book that you're thinking of writing about your experience with Parkinson's, do you think it would tie in with some of the themes that came up in other books you have written? Would there be still some connective tissue there? Maybe. Let's see. Certainly it convinces me happiness in life is more about character than anything else and success. And so the most important scientists who make the most important influences and changes and progress in science are not doing that because they're smarter than other people or better situated or anything like that. They're more curious and they're more honest. Well, thank you so much, Lee. This has been really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was fun. Thanks so much, Lee. Thanks for stepping inside the perimeter. If you like what you hear, please help us spread the word. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Conversations at the Perimeter wherever you get your podcasts. Every review really helps us a lot, and it helps more science enthusiasts find us. Thank you for being part of the equation. <laughs>